Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad to have you back again this week as we look at lesson number four in our study on death, dying, and the future hope. This week, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament hope. What hope is there in the Old Testament in this subject that we are delving into? And to help us understand an answer to that question is our guest again this week, Dr. Alberto Tim. He's an associate director of the LNG White Estate. Alberto, welcome back. It's an honor for me to join you every week. So let's take a look at this now. Old Testament. There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament, and sometimes people uh, will present this idea that there's a lot of pain and suffering and death and, and terribleness, and you've got an angry God in the Old Testament and so forth. I don't know that that's necessarily completely biblical, but it's a, it's a viewpoint that it pre- is uh, prevailing out there in some circles. But there is certainly some death in the Old Testament, and there's also some hope, and we want to try, try to draw some of that out. I want to go over to the book of Job and read a passage here from Job chapter 19 to kind of get us started. In Job chapter 19, starting in verse number 25, here's what's recorded. It says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. It's almost as if Job had been through a lot of pain and was looking for something better. I don't know if that's the case or not. What do you think? Actually, I don't recall any other human being, as far as I know, that has suffered so much as he, I mean, as Job has. Actually, uh, it was not only a physical pain, because of, of course he has physical pains, but he lost his livestock, many of his possessions. And uh, when you are in a trouble, you usually expect some kind of word of encouragement, of support, of comfort. But even his friends went against him. And worse than this, his children died, and his own wife was speaking badly about himself, so he was absolutely alone. I, I know some people that have lost a child, and that is very painful. You have the hope of, of seeing that child growing up, and when the child dies, or somebody that you really love, a beloved one, uh, it's very painful. But can you imagine in the case of Job, with all these problems going on. And uh, each one of us, as I mentioned before, needs a word of support if you are alone in this world because nobody is an island. Uh, If nobody is on your side, you are really in, uh, in a very bad situation. And this is the context that we see here. Somebody that suffered a lot. And then comes a question also. And I don't know if you ever ask this question for yourself, but there is the matter of why bad people prosper and sometimes good people who trust the Lord are in a very difficult situation. You remember that even the psalmist almost lost his faith till he went into the sanctuary and saw the end of the 
those who are prospering. So in this case here, in the most difficult situation, uh, Job said, no, I think that I better die now, and then my soul will be to go to paradise, and so I will be rejoicing over there. No. He spoke about his hope of being a hope of resurrection in my flesh or in my body as a person, as an individual. I will see the Lord when he will, will appear. In other words, you have a clear reference in this passage to the bodily resurrection. So there's a clear, a clear reference to that, as you mentioned. But I, I want to come back and, and, and hit on something that you touched on. And you really, you really do a, an excellent job of asking this question at the end of Sunday's lesson. And Sunday's lesson, it says, how can we learn to trust God even amid the harsh unfairness of life? I don't want to rush past the story of Job without dwelling on this question for a moment. How, how do we trust God? How can we trust God when we are, maybe we're not going through the same things that Job went through, but we're going through our own trials How do we learn to trust him in that? I think that this is not just an act, it's a process. For instance, love is not something that starts from day to night or something like that. It uh, it just jumps in and you are starting love, you know. Love is something that grows and you have to nourish it. The same thing happens about trusting God. I have to learn to trust God In my daily experience, simple actions here and there. You you face an issue here, another problem there, and you trust in God. And this builds up faith, trust, and hope. So if you are able to trust God in the daily life uh, based on his word and with something in mind, Because sometimes we believe that God's blessings are only if I prosper. Not necessarily. You remember that even Paul and some of the apostles considered to be a privilege to suffer for the Lord's cause. As he suffered, they were suffering. So I know that whatever I I will be facing is something that uh, God is with me. So God never promised that he would remove all the possibilities of facing a storm. But what makes the difference is that he is with us within the storm. So you should consider something. Remember, there is a stating, uh, a little prayer that says, God help me to remember that nothing will happen today that both of us together cannot handle. And that should encourage us to remember that he's there with us. He, he goes through the storms with us. He doesn't abandon us in the storms. Uh, encouraging words. Thank you. Eric, you, yes. could, you could even ask another question. And that would be, why did Lord allow, I mean, the Lord, God, allow uh, Job to, to suffer so much? Well, I think it was for his own sake. I don't know. Only God knows. But within the framework of the cosmic controversy that is mentioned at the beginning of the book, uh, it was a witness in favor of God and against Satan because Satan was saying, well, you have blessed him so much, 
he prospers. That's the reason why he, uh, he serves you so faithfully. But let's remove the blessings and see how he will behave. So within the great controversy, that had a meaning. And I think that this story not only happened, but also was recorded in the Bible as a, a way of helping us when myself, you, and whoever else is, say, is facing the harshness of life. And God does include these stories for us so that we can get through the, as you said, the harshness of life. There's another uh, interesting story that is, of course, recorded in the Bible, referenced in the memory text that we have for this week in Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 19. Verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now, this is, of course, we're talking about the New Te- or the Old Testament in this week, but this is a New Testament, Testament reference to an Old Testament story. So unpack this a little bit for us. Actually, if we, if we read the book of Genesis, there is no reference of Abraham speaking of uh, of a resurrection as such. But in reality, uh, we believe that the New Testament is inspired also by the Holy Spirit. So this is a passage from the New Testament that confirms that the concept of a bodily resurrection was not some foreign idea in the Old Testament. We have at least two examples so far. We have uh, Job and Abraham. Both really having this concept so is not something, a later development in human history or biblical history, whatever you want to say, uh, in regard to the resurrection. It comes from the very beginning. So all the way back at the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, we have, we have evidence from the New Testament that, that this concept was there. We continue seeing it through the Old Testament. Looking now at Psalm 49 and verse number 15 which says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So here again, we see this, this idea of the resurrection, of, of life beyond death. Yes, that, it's exactly the case. And if you want to consider soul as something separate from the body, even in this case, the soul would remain in the, in the grave. And uh, only through resurrection it would come back. But... In this case, we believe that the soul means really the human being as such. And you have another reference to the resurrection. Yep, and we have also in uh, Psalm 71, Psalm chapter 71, or Psalm 71, verse number 20, says, You who have shown me great and severe trouble shall receive, shall, pardon me, shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. So, a couple of references here from Psalms. Yeah, this here is an uh, ambiguous passage. is not as clear as the other ones that we, we read, or that you read, and we, we discussed a little bit. This one is a more ambiguous one. It can refer to the resurrection as such, or it can be really he overcoming deep depression. I mean, the psalmist. I would say, from my perspective, and uh, I have some sources that I'll agree with it as well, 
that a primary sense of this passage would be overcoming his depression. And a secondary sense would be the physical one, if you want to add it to. But is a, at least you have here a little glimpse into and so in, out. And so in the Old Testament, we do have these encouraging words to, to help us through. We're looking at Old Testament hope in the resurrection as we look at death, dying, and the future hope, which incidentally happens to be the name of the companion book for this quarter's Sabbath school study. If you're enjoying this subject, if you want to learn more about it, share it with others, I want to encourage you to pick this book up. You can find it at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's itiswritten.shop. It goes into greater detail on the subjects that we are looking at. The name of the book, again, is On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. The author is our guest this week and each week this quarter on Sabbath School, Dr. Alberto Tim. When we come back, we're going to continue looking at stories in the Old Testament that help us to understand the hope that we have even today. We're going to be back in just a moment. We'll see you then. Hi there, this is John Bradshaw from It Is Written with a special invitation for you to attend Grounded, broadcast globally from Knoxville, Tennessee, October 19th through 22nd. As we experience unprecedented times in an unstable world, our connection with God is more important than ever. This is an opportunity for you to strengthen your faith so that it's stronger, more relevant and real than ever before. Together, we'll explore five vital topics to our walk with God. Our interactive Bible study format will encourage and equip you to live a life of victory. Attend Grounded at a local site near you or watch online. Have your friends and family join you on this journey of transformation for eternity. Register your church, small group, or yourself right now at grounded.study and check out the information and resources available. See you October 19 through 22 for Grounded, brought to you by It Is Written. Welcome back. We're going to continue looking now at the hope that we have in the Old Testament. Let's take a look at the book of Isaiah now. Isaiah chapter 26, Alberto, I'm going to read a couple of verses here, verses 14 and 19. In verse 14, it says, they are dead, they will not live. That doesn't sound very encouraging if it stopped right there, but let's keep reading. They are dead, they will not live. They are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. But then in verse number 19, you see a a contrast here. It says, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So there are the dead, but then there are those who are cast out of the earth. They are no longer dead. Yeah, this is a very significant passage because first of all, in a negative term, it really says that the unrighteousness, the wicked, they have no life and even their memory will be gone. So I think that this passage from the negative uh, side, it really speaks about the end of the life and even of the memory of those who really 
are not with God, the enemies of God. But then you have the positive side. And the positive side is that there will be a resurrection. And in this passage here, I understand to be very meaningful for one reason. Uh, The passages that we considered so far, they deal more with individuals like Job, the psalmist, Abraham, and so that they believe that they would live, they would be raised from the dead after they, uh, uh, at appropriate time. But in this case, now you have a community being raised. So the covenantal community of those who are the children of God. And this community will be raised when God will manifest himself. And together with the community, uh, Isaiah was putting himself as well. So it broadens the concept of a resurrection from an individual perspective now to a broader communal perspective. So we're, we're broadening the idea here, and, and I think we might even be able to broaden it just a little bit more as we continue through this week on, uh, on let's see, what day is this? Thursday's lesson. You go into Daniel chapter 12, and there's some interesting things. There's actually quite a few interesting things in Daniel chapter 12 going on. But we want to focus specifically on the resurrection, death and the resurrection. But there's also some other interesting things happening here in Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 Daniel. and 2. Pardon me, Daniel chapter yep. 12. Thank you very much. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 12 is good, too. You should <laughs> read it. But we're going to look at Daniel chapter 12 today. It says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands, watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. Then verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So let's deal first with these resurrections, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It sounds like now this, this concept of the resurrection is, is getting broader still. Yes, because in the, as we mentioned before, we had individuals having the hope for the resurrection, and then comes a community. And, uh, of course, in Isaiah, the idea would be really that the wicked would not have everlasting life, only those who would be raised, those who were with God, But now it becomes clearer even this picture. So it's an unfolding scenario where you have now uh, both the the righteous and the unrighteous being raised. Of course, once, I mean, the group of the righteous to receive everlasting life and then the other group without everlasting life uh, to be punished. So this concept that is already much in place in the book of Daniel is far more unfolded, even more in the the teachings of Jesus, in the Gospels, and especially in the book of Revelation. You remember that that, uh, the book of Revelation and Daniel, they they fit together. In other words, many of the topics or the subjects of the book of Revelation um, are uh, uh, something they have their roots are rooted in the book of Daniel. 
So ultimately, even the wicked are going to be resurrected, and there is, of course, a, a purpose for that. Um, they're given an opportunity to acknowledge the fact that God is good and that he gave them every opportunity to be saved and that ultimately they squandered it, which is a, a sign of a, of a very loving God, a very caring God, and, and one uh, evidence that needs to be presented before the universe that God's plan was right and, and the adversary's plan was wrong. But that's a, a bit of a diversion uh, onto a much deeper and, and incredible subject. Uh, let's, let's take another short diversion here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse number one. It talks about Michael. Who is Michael here? Oh, there is a a tendency to identify Michael just as an angelic being because the word archangel uh, used elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, So he would be just an angel. But be careful with this because the angel of the Lord in some instances, refers to the Lord himself because the word angel means a messenger. So in this case, he would be the chief messenger. But I think that the best way is to allow the book of Daniel to answer this question. And you have, for instance, in Daniel 8, 11, you have the reference to the prince of the hosts. Then you go to to chapter 8, verse 25, the prince of princes. And then there is a crucial one in Daniel 9, 25, Messiah the prince. So when it speaks about the prince, it speaks here about the Messiah as being a prince. And then comes definitely the passage that you read, Eric, and this is uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, that speaks about Michael, the great prince, I would not consider that there would be another angelic being that would be greater, I mean, would be called a great prince that would be greater than the Messiah, the prince. So we have plenty of evidences that really it applies to Christ himself. And especially for one reason, you will see that the prophetic time periods, or better saying the prophetic uh, uh, element of, of Daniel, the prophecies, the visions uh, of Daniel, they have always a climax with the manifestation of Christ and his kingdom. You have in chapter 2, the stone. Then you have there, the son of man. You have in chapter 7. You have later on in chapter 8, the prince. And now you have uh, Michael, the great prince. If you would say that a climax of chapter 11 that continues into chapter 12, uh, this would not be Christ, then you have to deny the other ones as well because one of the main characteristics of Daniel is the repetition to amplify the, the, the concepts. So I think that we have plenty of evidences to believe that this is Christ. When he will manifest himself, he will then raise uh, uh, people from the grave. And, and you're referencing a, a favorite passage of mine, and I think a favorite passage of many Christians, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, in verse number 16. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here it references the Lord himself. It talks about the archangel and the dead in Christ rising. Now, just just to clarify, 
neither you nor I are suggesting that Jesus is an angel in the sense of a created being with the wings and, and so forth, but he is described as an archangel, as the, the chief of the host, the head of the angels, not a created being, correct? Exactly. And he is the messenger also of the Godhead. He is an absolute God and the one that speaks. Much of the revelation of the Bible was done by Christ. He revealed himself many times. Excellent. Let's, let's come back to this, this idea of, of who we are, the complexity of the human being, and the resurrection and how that all kind of comes together. I want to look at, briefly at Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to look at this. But verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your words, and that my, and that my soul knows very well. We are very complex beings, and yet God is able to raise us up. Well, sorry for the I people, IT people that really are so much fascinated with computers and technology and uh, cyber world and whatever else you want to add to it. But there is no machine that we have developed as human beings that, are as, that is as complex as the human body. And I am referring especially to the human brain. There are many studies that have been done in this area scientific ones trying to explain what it is. And to start with, not even you can explain what is life. We accept it as for granted. And so, uh, from my perspective at least, I believe that it would be quite something awkward, or whatever you want to say, to believe that some complex uh, form of life, as you are and as I am, with all the systems and whatever you want to add to it, uh, uh, and we don't know as completely, would be just uh, built to last for a few years. I think that there is something else, even from an existential perspective. I think that human beings as such were not really made just to live this life. But a hope that is in our that we find in the Old Testament and as well as in the New Testament shows how valuable we are created in God's own image and likeness and to live for eternity. There is even a passage that says that God has put eternity in our hearts. So So if God has put eternity in our hearts, that means that he wants us looking forward to eternity. And the only way that we can do that is if we have a relationship with Jesus. And I hope that during the course of these lessons that we've been going through, your relationship with Jesus has strengthened and deepened and that you've made a decision to let him be your savior and the king of your life. If you haven't yet, well, it's not too late. But when we come back, we're going to look at lesson number five as we continue looking at this interesting subject on death, dying, and the future hope because that hope lies in Jesus, the only one who can give us hope. We'll see you next time. God bless you.